Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles, which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Matt, and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. And I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. Here's how this works. Two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, and sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, I have two new albums to talk through, and Tim will make the choice for the subtitles albums list. Then in part two, Tim will have two new movies to discuss, and I will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movies list. Sometimes I'll have seen the movies, sometimes Tim will have listened to the albums, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Today's title to be replaced is The Woods, Slater Kinney's 2005 album. Uh, it would turn out to be their their last album before a 10-year hiatus. Um, and they've had three since 2015, so they seem to be back and, and rolling along again. But The Woods was uh, really a culmination, in a way, um, of... I don't know. I don't want to say Sleater Kinney's first phase because it wasn't like they they've radically changed since they came back. They've changed some, but the woods is uh, I don't know. It feels like a, a climax. It feels like a, a pinnacle in many ways, and uh, I think that's why it's the highest on the spin list. Uh, I would have it the highest. I had it pretty high on my on my ranking of two thousands albums. Um, I had it at number four, I believe number three three or four um and yeah I, I haven't come off that at all honestly maybe would put it a spot higher if i was doing that now um so this is an album i love and i'm honestly kind of shocked it's only at 58 um i'm, I'm shocked in general there's not more sleater kenny in the top 100 of this spin list this is the the only one if i remember correctly um I think they have one or two more hanging around in the 101 to 300 range, but this is the only one in the top 100, and I don't know. That surprises me. I don't know. How do you react to that, Tim? Does that seem weird? So just to, just to recap for the listeners, Matt had that three. Um, oh, thank you. And <laughs> yes, yeah, I figured I would check for you. Um, and I... I sort of wonder if it's the kind of thing you do when you feel like, oh, this album is important and this band is important and I feel like we need to put them somewhere, but we're not super passionate about them. Like, this doesn't seem like a passionate ranking to me. And and I guess I can understand why. I mean, like, if just like if, if you're... um. I don't know, just looking over the the spin list, if your if your general vibe for for music that's like fronted by women is more of the 
the Liz Fair or whole variety um, stuff, which is a little bit more obviously aggressive as opposed to just normal levels of aggressive, then I then I guess that's that's how you'd get here. But I also agree with you that even as someone who does not know all that much about the music of the past 30 years for them, this just seems like a like a weird place to put it like this really ought to be a top half thing. And I don't think it's that controversial to say that it should be. It just feels like of all places, Spin should be in on Slater Kinney. And I'd have to go back and look at the the decades lists from like Stereo Gum and Pitchfork because I think they both are in on Slater Kinney in different ways. But um, I don't know. I don't know that this album is like pushing top, certainly not top five, but like top 10 or even top 20 on any of those. Um, and it, I don't know. It just feels really weird to me from these publications for how important this band is how revered this band is especially the first uh 10 years of their output and this is an album came out to massive critical praise and it holds up as the one that i think generally gets put first if you're ranking their discography or if you're putting slater kinney on a list like this like it's pretty much the woods ends up on top you know, the hot rocks might play around with that if you're doing a 90s and 2000s thing. But like, this is the one from one of the biggest bands, a band that I think there's a reasonable argument that they're the best American band. Um, and I have, I'm increasingly of that opinion. Um, I think it's kind of murky at the top, but I think they're in that conversation. Like this is just a massive statement from a really important band and that it's only at 58 just continually surprises me. Um, I guess I'm glad it's here, but if, yeah, kind of like you, what you were saying, Tim, if, and this is kind of what the woods is about. Like it's that we affix uh, female fronted to the front of rock like is the problem itself um and this album not unlike any of the other ones but more than any of the other ones is just absolutely detonating that that concept um so i mean it's just it's a banger that has that meta quality to it that and it's the biggest statement by one of the biggest bands so like 58 just feels wrong for it to me but I don't know. I guess I also don't know what the casual casual listener relationship to Slater Kinney is. Um, I he, here's a question for you, Tim, as a as a screen person. Even though I'm about to ask you about TV, Carrie Brownstein, better known for Slater Kinney or for Portlandia at this point? It's got to be Portlandia, which seems incredible. But I think. It just like it got such a such a reception. The first few seasons in particular, I think, got such a such a reception. And then she ended up doing mm. those like American Express commercials or whatever it was in different. And like that was a direct Portlandia thing. Like I just I think a lot of people who watched that show would be genuinely surprised to find out um, that she sort of put on hold being one of our great rock guitarists in order to 
to be on a on a sketch comedy thing. I think that would that would surprise people. I also uh, before we throw it back to you, I decided to try to find where the woods is for stereo gum and pitchfork on their best of the 2000s. Bless you. Yeah. Well, I was I'm, I'm hoping I'm right because I don't want to. I don't want to, you know, tell people things that are not true. Um, Pitchfork has a top 200 of the of the 2000s. Um, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess. Uh, top 200 of the 2000s, Pitchfork. I mean, I know what they rated it, but all right, they, they futz with that stuff, which is fair. They should do that after, after some hindsight. Um, 32nd. 127 holy shit <laughs> and stereo gum as far as i can figure out did a did a top 50 i do not see the woods in their top 50 of the 2000s is one beat on either of those um i don't think so i didn't see slater kenny on the uh on the on the stereo gum one at all that's their 2002 album for listener reference. Um, all right, so this album is getting done fucking dirty, and apparently my new brand is defending this thing, which, look, y'all should not be my brand. <laughs> there are so many other things that just need, should need more help, apparently, but it's, I mean, I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of like scrolling through, and I really can't, I really can't find a, like anyone who's who's got this any higher than 58 so maybe the problem is not spin maybe the problem is everybody else i'm the one who has this higher than 58 (laughs) um jesus okay well that's genuinely shocking i'm not performing for for you at home here listeners (laughs) like i'm actually dumbfounded by this um I also clearly didn't do my research on this before the podcast started, um, but we like spontaneity, don't we? Yeah, like there are so many other bands, like you just said, that 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 should need this. And and look, no one wants me to be the person defending a Slater Kinney or like taking up the mantle for them. So, um, whoosh! Everyone, just go listen. Have yourselves a big Slater Kinney. Uh, session, and I mean this very seriously right now because uh, apparently we need to remember how great this band is. Um, I'm not exaggerating when I say I think they are up there in the conversation for best American band ever. Um, again, especially this first 10 years, and No Cities to Love in 2015, too, is, is just as good as a lot of the other stuff. Like, it's just an incredible run. Um, it will get back. I'll get back to the album in a second, but anything else on that, Tim, you looked like you had some more. No, I'm just, I'm just sort of surprised too. It's, I, I guess it's fun for our listeners to experience in real time with us, the total, <laughs> total shock that we, that we managed to, to walk into here. Whoosh. Um, anyway, spoilers listeners, if you're not familiar with Slater Kinney, but you, you have seen Portlandia in your day. Um, yeah, the 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 person opposite Fred Armisen, um, <laughs> foremost American guitarist and and uh, well, I'm gonna say secondary vocalist in this band, and I don't mean that as a qualitative thing. I mean just literally, she is. Um, 
but she's the one with the I don't know, I suppose the more cool and more uh, snide sounding vocals and and Corin Tucker is the one who is blowing your ears out when she starts howling righteously and unlike anyone else can like it's a utterly singular voice she has and it's it's amazing um and she's going full bore on this one um there's a couple songs at the end of one beat where she really lets loose too but across the woods tucker is just absolutely bellowing um and janet weiss right right? this this is a trio janet weiss is the the other uh prong of that um has since left the band sadly um but she's the drummer and like tucker is absolutely bellowing weiss is just hammering the shit out of this whole album um she's a great drummer like there's such heft and noise um and yet like she's tasked with holding together a band she's tasked with holding together two guitarists without a bassist and brownstein is is fully on it like just sounds like she's fighting her guitar on most of this album like there are so many disparate threads and sounds on this and weiss has to hold together the whole rhythm section and she does and it's it's an incredible performance from her um uh, like I would have been saying this, whether this this album was highly ranked like it should be or not. So I'm not trying to oversell it all. It's, it's just a really, really good and really. I, it just it it rocks like that's going to be in our theme today, but it just rocks. It's a super good listen. It's hard. Uh, it's it's. The guitars in particular can be aggressive at points, so I don't know if that's not your thing. Maybe that's why the Woods isn't high on your list, but they they just they smashed it out of the park on this one to me. Um, this is the best Slater Kenny album, and there's a lot of contenders for that. Um, and it's just one that I mean, like I was saying, it's just fun to listen to, and like that's super important to me. I don't think I talk about that enough on this podcast. I'm sure I've mentioned it before, but like stuff that is fun to listen to that just makes your ears happy. And you got to invest in that stuff. And that's kind of what this whole episode is going to be about. But we'll get into that more specifically. Um, You know, I have a little bit I can do with with various songs um, or just the album in general. But uh, like these are just three women at the top of their game who are who are incredible musicians. Uh, making something that has no filler and is just it just bangs from beginning to end but what uh i don't know what were your thoughts tim or what stands out to you uh sort of to to go with what you've been talking about here and things that like make your ears happy and things that just kind of rock i think um it's i'm sure this is not like the the takeaway track for most people from the album but i just feel like the fox is such a great example of of an opening track that is signifying this is what we are going to do for the next 40 45 minutes 50 minutes an hour and and there's something to be said for an opening track that just sort of lays down the law like that um that just sort of gives the entire ethos of the album and i mean sort of like it's not like every single song on here sounds like that obviously but it it sort of it's like a great introduction 
to the band on its own merits between all of the things we talked about, Corin Tucker doing whatever it is that Corin Tucker does vocally. It really, it really is special. Like they're really, there, there's a very short list of people who sound like her. Um, what Carrie Brownstein is doing on, on guitar, what Janet Weiss is doing with drums. Like all of it is like, like just a, it's a, it's a very good thesis statement. If this were an essay, this would be just a, a really ripping abstract or a really great opening paragraph or something. Uh, the, yeah, the Fox, I think it's kind of a bellwether on the album in a weird way. Like nothing else on here is, sounds quite like it. Um, and nothing else is, is certainly as allegorical. Um, yeah. I, I, musically, it's a mission statement. Like it just comes out all guns blazing. Like there's a quick, burst of distortion and then total liftoff like the whole band comes in at the same time uh brownstein is just warping some riffs around the the whole uh sonic landscape weiss is is just rumbling it's just a, a an elephantine beat on that one um like it's just as rugged as ever there's this marvelous fuzz and just kind of sludge across the album and and a lot of that's uh, in the production, which is done by Dave Friedman. I'm pretty sure it's Dave Friedman, who's the, like, probably most famous for being the producer for uh, the Flaming Lips, which is a very different kind of band. Um, so he's usually, like, full in a bag of production tricks um, with with a band like the Flaming Lips. But here he, he kind of steps out of the way, which is the best choice. Um, but he does add that kind of wonderful fuzziness and... and just kind of like muck and dirt to the production that really helps stimulate the low end, right? Like this, again, band not working with a bassist here, at least in the recording, um, but he's able to add that kind of heft to the bottom end. Um, and it definitely adds to something like The Fox, which is uh, kind of a menacing song. Um, so, right, it's good to have that in the back end. And and Tucker right away is just is just howling and is able to pierce all of this noise and rumble and thunder that Brownstein and Weiss create. It's a song that's just total bulldozer energy. And that energy will ebb and flow slightly across the album, but really they come out blazing and they just kind of stay there for for the entirety of this thing. And the and the one song that maybe plays with that is Modern Girl, which I think is probably the most famous song from <clears throat> this album might be the most famous Slater Kinney song, like full stop. Um, Brownstein's uh, uh, autobiography is called hunger makes me a modern girl, which is right. One of the pullout lines for this. So it's, it's a big song. Uh, good chance that at least some of our listeners have heard it again. I'm sort of struggling with all reception to Slater Kinney. Now I don't know what the popular what the popular read of them is either yeah uh i will i will remark for people that sort of like there's one sharon van etten song on my wife's work spotify playlist this is the the slater kinney song that is on the mm. the work playlist so i think that that vibe i think that level of penetration seems about right uh I said the fox is a bellwether. Modern girl is a bellwether. Um, it's a good song. I'm glad it makes it onto playlists, but uh, it's not exactly what what you're in for in the woods. Um, 
I wrote about this more in my uh, my blog write up in the the top 100 ranking, um, and I wrote a lot more about the uh, kind of sex and gender questions and politics and issues around this album and how Slater Kenny is basically just trying to eviscerate that question. Um, so if you want more on that, go read my blog. Um, there's good stuff on there and there's deeper analysis into that part of it. Um, but I'm not going to get too deep into that here, but I'll just say modern girl, right. It starts out kind of knowingly ironic. Like you can tell Brownstein's lead lead vocal on this one. And, you know, you can tell it's, it's a, it's a put on saccharineness. Um, and it runs the risk for a while of just being, okay, well, this is a fun little tongue in cheek thing. Um, but speaking of the production, the, just the fuzz that comes in by the end of that, the distortion on the guitars and the vocals, how oppressive that song becomes. Like if you're listening on headphones in particular, the music just presses in on you on, on, on both sides too. Like it becomes a claustrophobic experience. It becomes like, you feel like you're in an actual swarm by the end of that song. And that to me is vital for that. Um, right. That's doing more work than any ironic lyricism can do. And, and again, I think that's just part of what makes this band so great that like, yeah, they could have had a perfectly fine song that was just knowingly winking at you. Um, but to make that a visceral experience and and to be able to do that, to know how to best do that, to do that in a three-ish minute song that's going to end up on a bunch of playlists, like there's so much happening there. And there's so much work that that, that production and just that playing is doing. Um, you know, it, it's subtext if you're thinking only about words, um, but it becomes the text of the thing. Like it's it's a great song, and there's not a ton happening in that one, especially compared to the rest of the album, where it's a lot more fireworks. Um, but right, they just know how to make it a sonic experience too. And you know, if we're thinking of great bands, I think we talked about this with movies a few episodes ago. Like, right, what you know, their screen experience. You know, what makes something a filmic experience? Like, what's unique to that? It's music. It's not just words. Like, what makes it a, a sonic experience? Uh, and Slater Kinney's really good at that. In Modern Girl, um, you know, whether that's kind of pulled back a little bit in something like The Fox, where that's all squirrely and, and um, pulverizing energy to, you know, to mirror that fable that they're going through. Or something like Let's Call It Love that has a uh, an extended psych jam solo in the middle. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, they just know what they're doing. They know how to create these, these tangible, visceral landscapes um, that can tell you more about their their ethos, their mission statement, their, their politics than anything. Um, and all the songs across the jumper is another great example. The verses on that are kind of this very anxious buzz buzzing. And Brownstein wrote that one about, uh, she had read an article about, um, some folks who right, committed suicide by jumping off the golden gate bridge. And she's sort of narrating that experience. And, you know, it's that, that buzzing consideration in the verses and the chorus is just boom. And, 
like some air just rushes in through those and they they just kind of ascend to another level and that's tucker howling again um but it, this 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 moment of rushing conviction um and that tends to be where the action is happening so right they 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 mirror the music to everything perfectly so i think Right, they're part of the Riot Girl thing. Riot Girl is going to be a, a theme on a later episode, so we'll dig into that a lot more. It's easy to look at this band and think, okay, lyrically, what are they doing that you know is important to gender considerations in rock? Um, what what are they saying about their politics? What are they saying about their uh, their socio cultural stances? They have stuff to say that's certainly interesting. I'm not you know, knocking that down. And again, I talk about this in, the, in my write-up. Uh, but it's also so not the point. Like, just listen to the fucking music. <laughs> um, it's going to tell you all you need to know. And to me, the, the the grand point of the woods is, like, it doesn't matter who you are. If you can make kick-ass rock music, then you should make kick-ass rock music. And the, the book is well established that this one was right self-consciously heavier, that they were looking back to uh, you know, bands like Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple in particular, like they want the heft, they want the stomp, they want the the the, the heavy metal of it all. Um, the, you know, the seventies version of that. And I don't know, man. I don't know a better uh, instance of it, certainly in the two thousands and that it was made by Slater Kinney doesn't really matter. Um, they were just the ones able to do it and able to do it best. And so that'll bridge us into our theme a little bit. Um, but they also kind of talk about this and entertain. I think this is the last song I'll point out in particular. Um, and right, there's, there's other people who have written on this, me not so much, but um, you can find a lot on this. But there's a moment in entertain. This is Brownstein again. Um, Again, she tends to have the cheekier vocals, so if you're hearing something funny or ironic, it's probably her. Um, she's also not the banshee, so that should be an easy way to tell which one is singing. Um, you come around looking 1984, you're such a bore, 1984. Nostalgia, you're using it like a whore, it's better than before. Um, that That's a section that gets pulled out in a lot of reviews, I think, but, you know, in 2005 in a moment that's looking explicitly back to all moments are looking back to post-punk in their own ways but like it, the 80s in particular right she names 84 um you know hot fuss is around here this is the big franz ferdinand block party boom um bands that i will defend to the death like they're the best instances of it but right that, that's kind of the sound that's taking over here Slater Kenny is just in conversation with a different set of things. And what is the ethos of rock to grab you by the collar and make you pay attention and just give you that visceral thrill. And if the woods does anything, it's that. Uh, so fuck your 1984, fuck your uh, ironic post-punk posturing, fuck your, um, I don't know your uh, obsession with presentation. Like we put that onto Slater Kenny. They're just not worried about it. They're just here to play. Um, and the woods does that as well as anything. So 
this became more of a stump speech for me than I expected coming in, but I guess I need it to be based on where this ends up on rankings. But anything else you want to say about the woods, Tim? No, I think I think this is a, a good transition point, like the theme, at least as far as I know what the theme is. And and I think this will this will move well. <laughs> uh, this is one of the few themes that hasn't that didn't change. Um it is what it was when I when I first put all these down, and I thought about maybe doing some other things, but you know, it, it's uh, it's a theme that fits into a conversation that I am both tired of and love having constantly. So, rock is dead. Long live rock. I want to say every couple of years, but honestly, every year, every few months, every week, maybe there's some narrative out there that like rock and roll is dead. It's finally dead. You could find these these assessments from like 2000. Um, it's never going to die. What people mean is that it's not the commercial pinnacle anymore that it used to be, which is true. That doesn't mean it's dead. That doesn't mean no one is making good rock music. That doesn't mean that the, the kids are forgetting about it. Um, it's it's clickbait, really. Um, I think there's a genuinely interesting conversation in the, like, what is popular at any given moment? Like, what is the kind of apex radio genre? Um, I mean, what took the place of rock music is country. Like, that's the thing that is, right? It's hitting the, the same sorts of audiences, really. Like, classic rock just became modern country. Um, I, I'm not going to pretend I'm a country scholar, and I don't talk about it ever on this podcast. So no one yell at me, but I'm pretty, like, I feel confident in that assessment that I can draw a line from classic rock radio to contemporary country radio, and it's the same people. Um like that's what that's what took that space and i i could go on a long time about what's actually on like modern rock radio um it's not the stuff that gets critically praised at all it gets absolutely hammered if it's ever covered um but more people listen to that stuff but that's a different podcast um rock is not dead it it is alive it's just different from what a lot of culture makers assume rock to be which is itself a kind of gatekeeping um so it's dead in a sense but man it lives forever and we're gonna look at slater kinney right they're just they're bringing it back they're in conversation with what they want to be and they're just they're just rocking out and we're gonna look at two other bands who do that too and um right the ways that they none of these are pure nostalgia acts um, I probably have more work to do on one of the replacements <laughs> to make that <laughs> evident than the other, but they're not. Um, and none of these are just aping anything like the, like Brownstein's calling out in the 1984 line. Um, they're all genuinely of this ilk and they're in conversation with rock and we'll look at how they're doing that. Um, and just how they're making it fresh again, which is what happens every time one of these narratives comes out. And then suddenly, oh, there's bands around doing this thing. Cool. Um, so that's kind of what we're on about today. But you looked like you were going to say something and I just kept babbling. Blame it on my ADD, baby. Sale. 
Yeah, that's also kind of where rock went. Again, that's that's many that's that's uh, my long form podcast for the future, <laughs> maybe. Um, all right, so today we're gonna look deep breath. Uh, we're gonna look at the darkness and their 2003 album "Permission to Land," an album that would have fit perfectly in the episode about when dinosaurs roamed and no one would have batted an eye. And we're gonna look at is everyone ready? Songs for the Deaf, the 2002 Queens of the Stone Age album. Tim, mm-hmm. do you want to prepare the listeners for my relationship with Songs for the Deaf? What are you worried about it when I start talking about that one? Um, that the episode will not end and we will run out of time on the <laughs> on this on this app that we use that we only get so much time per month. Um more seriously but also maybe not quite as seriously um (laughs) i think that one was serious (laughs) that was i mean that was not unserious um i'm actually i'm actually sort of interested to hear how how the uninitiated to your queens of the stone age um fandom belief whatever you want to whatever you want to call it I'm, i'm interested about what the intro position is because i feel like I feel like I might not even have gotten the 101 or 102 version. I feel like I just got thrust directly into like 301 <laughs> and that's that's sort of where I've been ever since. Um but I I I do think that if I don't pick this one, it will it will not be quite as bad as that time I didn't pick Tool, but it might be close. Um, it might be worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll get into that one, though. Just everyone know that we're I'm about to be talking about what is quite possibly just my straight up favorite album. Um, but hold for that thought in, I don't know, 15-ish minutes. Um, let's start with The Darkness and Permission to Land from 2003. Y'all know the darkness because y'all know I believe in a thing called love. Uh, Maybe the greatest song ever. He said with only minimal hyperbole, I would believe that even more if I didn't think a song coming up later might be the greatest song ever. (laughs) Um, All right, not ever, but of the decade, I believe in a thing called love. Top 10 probably top five i think that's safe I, I, I probably would end up putting it top five if if someone held my feet to the fire um i don't i didn't think that out beforehand maybe that's the decile <laughs> um but god damn that song is so good we all know it and i'm, I'm just gonna kind of let it hang there but like go back and watch the video too it's just marvelous. Oh my god, the, the video, video is so good. The, the giant <laughs> purple like towel monster. It's so good. Um, more than anything, this album is just fun as hell. And this also made my top one hundred of the uh, of the two thousands list. It was at number one hundred. If I were to go back and do that today. It's still going to be near near that side of things, I'll be honest, but it, it might, you know, after listening to this again a few times for the podcast in particular, it probably jumps up a little. Um, one of my weird niche things on that was kind of a consideration of uh, 
it really it was just a way of me looking at consistency of albums like how much filler is on them and how much just just peaks can can cover for and permission to land was a good was a good test for that theory because yeah there's some songs on here especially in the back half that like they're good they're solids but i don't necessarily need them um but when you have stuff like i believe in a thing called love or growing on me or giving up which tim is gonna wax rhapsodic about in a minute uh it doesn't really matter like there's just there's five five maybe six songs on here that are just absolute stunners and that makes up for any filler that's going to be like it's it's a 10 11 song album like it's nothing too long either so uh it tests that theory a little bit but it comes out with a straight up acdc riff um and an akadaka riff as I i don't even know if he listens but if you're listening you know who you are um like to the and we're going to keep you anonymous <laughs> for your own good. Um, you have a life and you're doing things. You don't need to be on this. Um, I, like To the point that I'm amazed that Angus didn't make that riff at some point. And, but but it, right out of the gates with that in a song about a demon dog terrorizing the English countryside. And I don't think there's a subtext. Like, I think it's just a song about a demon dog terrorizing the English countryside. And that is an effective illustration of why I love this band. It is just uh, not old timey. It's just 70s, spe- like driving down the road, windows down, speakers blaring, rock riffage and songs that are about what they are about. And Justin Hawkins, underrated lyricist in terms of not meaning necessarily. Follow me here. I see your skeptical face. Um, Mm -hmm. But particularly in terms of. I don't I don't I don't have the precise language for this, but like he just knows how to fit words into the songs like it becomes a the the way that he actually structures his lyrics and the ways that they they work around the instrumentation like they just fit so snugly and i i think he's great at at turns of phrase um again you're not getting major subtext on this album you're not getting any <laughs> but so so i'm not saying he's you know he's not writing something like the fox uh, but just the way that he works within the music we'll get to his voice in a second that said hawkins is surprisingly self-aware in places Uh, i do want to shout this out about his you know actual words i've been talking about uh you know his 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 lyrics as part of the music but he just has some fun some money some money yeah some moments where he's hilarious at times and and then also strangely self-aware for a band that is such pomp and circumstance and like it's just right there the the surface is the is the subtext um he has moments like on get your hands off my woman which you know you can kind of imagine by the title where this might go there's a lot of songs like this in the uh in the rock canon and in the the, the rock not canon um verse one though you are drunk and you are uh, surly in Latino lover mode. We all know what's on your agenda. Yeah, we've broken the code. Here's the moment. 
Oh, I've got no right to lay claim to her frame. She's not my possession. You cunt. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you remember the darkness, if you remember, I believe in a thing called love, you know that he's delivering that with a lot more panache than my, than my reading. Um, I don't know. I just love that moment. The like, I have no right to do this. This is bad of me. She's not an object. She basically, he basically says that at another point, but also fuck you, dude, let's fight. Um, and the songs where, where Hawkins gets, gets a bit surly where he starts threatening other dudes and he does so in his falsetto some of the greatest moments in music like this man's voice is you know corin tucker's voice is singular hawkins you know the immediate comp is going to be freddie mercury um so like it's not that he doesn't sound like other people but man he's talented and i'm so sad he stuffed so many drugs into that throat uh because that voice is just life affirming and yeah when he's making threats it's it's some of the funniest moments um like i just sit there and giggle to myself and get your hands off my woman is a great example of that um i'm gonna run through a couple kind of quick fire and then we'll then we'll do a little giving up thing yeah go ahead <laughs> can i can i make a an alternate comparison yes it's like if you took barry gibb mm but with the intended ethos of Lil Sweet from the <laughs> Diet Dr. Pepper commercials. So who I realize is Justin Guarini, but still no, like that's the No, but no one can tell me Lil Sweet is not a darkness ripoff. Like as soon as I saw that Dr. Pepper commercial, the first one of those, there are several. Like that was my first thought. I was like, this is absolutely ripping off Justin Hawkins. <laughs> is that Lil Sweet? <laughs> <laughs> so yes that's a very good comp and uh i'm glad you finally got the bgs into <laughs> yes <laughs> took us a while um growing on me is just clean and spectacular like 80s pop rock hair metal stuff like it would have fit snugly on hysteria or pyromania you know a, a couple episodes ago i talked about def leopards just greatness bar none but like uh just their ability to create pop metal hooks and growing on me is is firmly of that lineage love is only a feeling starts with that like cavernous drum sounds like it's just the drums in there heavy beats you can hear there in space a bit of the echo we solo into an acoustic section and hawkins is breaking out his his uh more sweet singing voice like it's all the tropes of a ballad and they're all done perfectly. Like the song could so easily just run into absolute schlock, but the, the conviction, the delivery is just pitch perfect. And to me, that's the, the key and kind of the essence of this whole album. You could right the ways I'm describing it. You could have automatically decided, Nope, not for me. If you're one of the people who's like hair metal, that's that stuff is trash. A lot of it. Yeah, sure. Whatever. But like there's good stuff in there and the darkness is is right. That's where their influence is. 
and they're wearing it on their sleeves. There's no hiding it. And the way they deliver it is just is just perfect across the whole album. And that's what makes it so enjoyable. They're having fun doing it and it's infectious. Um, Love on the Rocks, another standout. It's kind of the heavier ballad. Um, it's it's right. That's a song that would have fit really well with the dinosaur comps from that other episode. Um, I mean, the whole album, right? There's ACDC here. There's some blues. There's definitely glam. There's hair metal. It's all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And emphasis on rock because the whole album does. And if you're looking for for winking irony if you're looking for a moment on this where it's like we're doing this because it's funny or because we can or because uh right who would think to do this surely no one would but let us do it nope it's not there um this is a band that's utterly self-aware and give not a single shit about your perceptions of the kinds of music that they're doing this is what they do. They do it with the utmost conviction. They know what it is. There's no irony. There's no mystery there. And it's just fun. And you can tell if something is written as a joke or if it's written with actual conviction. And Permission to Land just picks you up in the corniest of rock tropes and just ascends. It, it takes you to... right. It, it, like, it lets me turn my brain off. I don't have to think about these songs because they're just so thrilling. And, you know, I kind of said this at the end of the woods, like that's what good rock music does. And permission to land is in conversation with stuff that is cornball. That was especially cornball in 2003 when this comes out, right? This is right after the, the real peak of, you know, the garage rock revival of the strokes of the white stripes. Um, you know, of, of the Brooklyn bands doing that sort of thing. And the darkness, Permission to Land is just a massive zag from where others are zigging. And it's clear an indication as anything that the, it may not be the most popular thing anymore. This may be a midlife crisis moment, but this music can still just hit you in your gut and in your loins, most likely, and just just take you for a fun ride for like 40 minutes. Like it's evergreen in that way, if it's done with conviction and if it's done in fun. Um, so that's my whole thesis, but we're going to have a little digression on giving up here. So Tim, go ahead. So just to transition very quickly from what you said, um, thinking about the sort of classic rock era or at least a, a halcyon bygone time, uh, that's what Almost Famous is for, which is not a movie I like all that much, but <laughs> Phillips, yeah, other people like that one a lot more than that, I That's do. my movie, um, listeners. <laughs> that's That can be yours. So Philip Seymour Hoffman is is unequivocally great in that movie, and I, I am here to talk about his Lester Bangs mm. interpretation, uh, where he is looking at a, at a Jim Morrison picture or album or something and says he's a drunken buffoon posing as a poet, and then he picks up another album, and he's like, yeah, uh, give me the guess who. Come on, they've got the courage to be drunken buffoons, and that's that's the spirit of rock that I feel like the darkness just lives in <laughs> in such a such a beautiful way. Is the courage to be a drunken buffoon, the courage to to 
zig as other zag and then like maybe make up another word for zig <laughs> because that's like how far away they are um anyway so i as i was listening to this album again um i as as a younger person i don't think i had looked up the lyrics to this all that much <laughs> um and i think the thing about given up is that it's one of the funniest songs ever written and the fact that it is this funny is proof to me that this is probably our greatest song about drugs and being hooked on drugs because i don't know just just google songs about drugs and so many of them are just kind of like kind of a bummer and like oh no drugs are so bad and i'm so hooked on them and i'm famous and like Yes, we understand it. It's not, it is not great, but like so much of it is like people think Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is good because like it's in code or something and it's the kind of thing you pass along when you're a teenager. Um I mean, how many how many really great songs are there about being on drugs, taking drugs? It's fewer than you think. Cuz there are plenty of songs about drug use but there are just not that many that do something interesting with the music. Um, so like, I really like white rabbit, the mm -hmm. Jefferson airplane song, because I think that is actually doing something kind of interesting musically about like the process of taking something. Um, but I just, I mean, the, the pre-chorus in, <laughs> in given up is just so succinct and so beautiful. Um, well, I've ruined nearly all of my veins. Stick in that extreme falsetto fucking shit into my arms. <laughs> it's just such a such a beautiful way of putting it. And it's so funny. And so it's like so self-loathing, but also like, yes, there's a reason people do this getting off my face there's a dragon i must chase honey i'm the scourge of all mankind which is good writing that's the weirdest thing <laughs> like, that's a great metaphor um i you haven't even mentioned my favorite part uh but i won't apologize i'd inject it into my eyes if there was nowhere else to stick my stag my skag <laughs> and like even the the I think it's the bass part, the doo-doo-doo-doo mm. is like just sort of like corny. <laughs> like it's it's almost like it's something that someone was saying on like a kid's television show and it was supposed to be a joke, but it's not. I mean, even the riff that carries this thing, like not to tie this entirely back to the di the dinosaurs episode, but right, it's something off of that cult uh record, off of electric, like it's that kind of just straightforward hammerhead blues riff um or like 80s rolling stones if you want that comp um again like total trope moment but it it just works because it's delivered with utter conviction and hawkins to me the best drug songs are either wrestling very explicitly with loss of control and the responsibility for that something like white rabbit um uh or it's this and i don't know anything else that quite fits into this genre but like if if other songs are this just clear and succinct about how this is a terrible thing i'm doing 
and then make the moment of injection sound so absolutely elated it's incredible work that this song is doing the chorus of just O's and then I'm giving up, giving a fuck. Like it's this moment of pure joy in a very weird way. And like, this is not a song at all. That's hiding how terrible it is what he's doing. Um, It's the most honest assessment of drugs in any song ever. And that it just plays. So that's just so fun to listen to. Like, right, it's it's clearly awful, and yet we can listen to this and have just a happy fucking time. Um, love this song so much. The only the only other song that I think just immediately comes to mind that has the same kind of vibe to it is Can't Feel My Face, mm, the, the yeah. weekend song. And like I like that song a lot, but it has none of the of the humor or the weirdness of of yeah. this like it has the same vibe and i appreciate that song because it does feel like something you can get down to um but it just it just does not have the laugh out loud quality of my mom wants to know where my money is going <laughs> mom i'm using it all on heroin <laughs> all she does is nag 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 <laughs> um yeah i really i really like can't feel my face too but the writing's just not as it's not as good it's not this um incredible song incredible totem to what right when we say rock and rock is dead what we're envisioning is a band like the darkness and more people should a realize that and b man just be thankful that we got this album and i would say the follow-up uh one way ticket, I think, is good. It's not as good as this one, but like there again, some just absolute bangers on that one. Um, we should just be thankful we got this before the heroin actually took Hawkins down. He's not dead. The the darkness still makes music. <laughs> but this moment from like 03 to 06, absolutely magical. And I'm here to put respect on this band's name. Um because like the drug habits, they were never hiding it like the corniness of it is is our fault <laughs> um and the darkness was just here to have fun and make kick-ass music and that's what they did and they did it with a plum on permission to land anything else you want to say about this one before we move on no no i know how much i know how much space we have left in this <laughs> in this cloud um all right here we go being good deep breath Songs for the Deaf, Queens of the Stone Age. It was number four on my top 100 of the 2000s list. So we have three albums here that made that list. I think this is a first for that on the podcast. I might be wrong. Um, I mean, right, there aren't like a ton of options because I'm usually hopscotching decades. But I think this is this is the first instance. Um I'm going to I'm going to second that and I'm also going to just very quickly scroll and tell you if I think you might be yeah. wrong. I, I'm worried about one of the modest mouse episodes or wherever I brought in transatlanticism. Um uh this is certainly the first and only episode that will have two of my top 5 in it. So that one I'm sure of and I'm confident will remain the same. Um if the darkness, if permission to land is the sex and drugs portion of the rock and roll equation, 
songs for the deaf is the satanic portion of the proceedings and not not literally like queens of the stone age is not a satanic band no one think that going in um, but this album right there's some clearer markers of this there's a lot of like like uh, gallows harmonies uh, in the back of a lot of these songs but just in the in the in the way that they're playing here in the production especially towards the end of the album with like the title track and mosquito song it just sounds like you're being enclosed upon by an army of the dead like you you are part of the damned and you you are one of the doomed and this is the soundtrack to your descent and i love that about it and i think like this builds as the album goes on um, from an absolutely barn burning blistering opening salvo um one of the best opening four tracks of any album and from there it is just kind of this descent through different genres through some fun uh but ultimately into a kind of hell and this is the to me the the perfect iteration of all the different things that queens of the stone age do i i love all their albums for different reasons uh but this is the one that has everything on it and I find myself defending three bands in ways that I didn't necessarily expect to coming in, but there's, I think, increasing conversation when there's any about Queens of the Stone Age about whether Rated R or Songs for the Deaf is the best one. They're both phenomenal. They're one and two in some order. I think the spin list, Rated R is in the back half somewhere. I don't think Songs for the Deaf is anywhere, which is an atrocity, but I'm not going to yell about that. Um, so there seems to be more and more for rated R, but I think we forget just how, just how compelling, how I missed the first number. So it's something 42nd, 242. 242. So the back half, I was right. Um, uh, we'll get into what makes this great though, but did you, did anything come up in my blog to prove me wrong? About what? Oh, I thought you were looking if I had any other instances of, Oh, 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 no, I think, no, I think this, this really is the first one. I thought for sure, like the modest mouse stuff, but I know this is, this is, this is the, the right answer. That's the, I wasn't sure. Um, if I had been a better person when I made that one and put, um, uh, motion city soundtrack in the top 100, like I mm-hmm. tortured myself about, and I absolutely should have then that, then there would be another episode that had three, but anyway, this is also we're gonna get the context out of the way first um to many i think to me too though i I do like the current lineup they have this is kind of the peak queens of the stone age lineup which is notoriously uh revolving um this is certainly a muso band if you're not familiar with that term it's like a band for musicians really like it's a lot of people just come and jam and josh ami is kind of the the driving force he's the dude um but this is right your your favorite musician's favorite band like that kind of thing that kind of concept um but this is the lineup of josh ami of course he's on all of them uh nick oliveri his last album with the band he's the 
you know, if anyone in this band is an actual is actually possessed by Satan, it's Nick Oliveri. Um, he's the bassist who is averse to clothing in general. <laughs> if you see any live performances from this era, um, Mark Lanigan is here doing uh, contributing lead vocals to a few songs. I think he's doing some guitar work. Um, he's he passed recently, so rip to Mark Lanigan. But um, his main his main bag was the Screaming Trees. Uh, so a great early nineties grunge adjacent band. Um, and he just has a, like aloof smokers cool that, that few other people can bring. And then Elaine Johannes is not, I don't think he's listed as like a, uh, a core permanent member on this one, but he works on enough of the tracks that I'm just considering him part of the lineup. But technically here, I think there are four piece. Um, and of course the, the end of that four piece, the one I've been saving is Dave Grohl, um, they got him to come in and play drums for for the whole album and to tour with them for a while and play the drums he does. This is I'm I'm a fan of Grohl's work in Nirvana on the drum kit, but also skeptical at some points. He's undeniable here. Um and it's you know, they have John Theodore on the drums now, who's also just an incredible drummer the old Mars Volta drummer. So there you go for you, Tim. Um, but right. His style's just different. Grohl brings just an incredible swagger to the whole thing. And um, it, 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 in, in, in a loudness too, that they don't really have on any other album. And, and part of that may well be the production. It's like, okay, you have Dave Grohl. You're going to feature the drums a little bit differently. Um, but he, he, I mean, to put a, a very technical, precise phrase on it, he just beats the shit out of the kit. And it's it's every song and, you know, as blistering as this thing is to open, a lot of that is, is to Grohl's credit. Um, you wanted the 101, Tim. I'm going to think of what that might even be, <laughs> if I can even give that or if I'm too deep into my love. But what is your, uh, I don't what's your reaction to this album? And, and be honest, be honest. I know... We all know where I'm at at this point, but what, what were you thinking? I was just going to say the 101 on this, I think, is is probably just no one knows, right? Yeah. Like, just as a as a perfect the, the encapsulation of, of what kind of, I don't know, throwback these guys are doing. Like, there is this incredible purity about that song that I that I really do like a lot. Um but yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the 101 is the first two songs. You think I ain't worth a dollar, but I feel like a millionaire and no one knows. Like everything is right there. So I'll use that as kind of a jumping off point to keep this short. But sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I just I just think that it's it's such a wonderful way of kind of featuring everybody. Like sort of the way you were saying, if you have Dave Grohl coming on board, you're going to, you know, give him a little bit of room to run. Um and it really is a song where there is a recognizable hook for every instrument, including the voice in in the band. And there's just like this wonderful synergy, um, which I think hilariously I kind of think about with the Beach Boys first, but like the same kind of, you know exactly what everyone's doing nothing is exactly like anything else 
but it's all synthesized in such an incredible way. And the result is, in the case of No One Knows, like a basically perfect four minute and change song. And as opposed to having made like good vibrations or something. (laughs) Not basically perfect. It is perfect. And I said, uh, I believe in a thing called love has some competition for best song of the decade. And no one knows is the competition. Were we so bold as to call it the best song of the decade in a bracket? I think we were. I was just wondering that if you want to, I was going to ask you what your students thought it was and how wrong they were. And I was going to look that up. Oh, I forget what they even picked, but yeah, if you can find that, I'll try and remember what they picked too. They might've picked bright side. I can't remember for sure, which I don't know is wrong, but I don't hate it because hot fuss is just fun. Um, Anyway. Yeah. Let's talk about the, about the first two songs here. I think this uh, can be an effective, mostly encapsulation of, of what songs for the deaf is up to. Uh, You think I ain't worth a dollar is a perfect opener. It's all guttural energy and swagger. Grohl is the first uh, musician we hear, and he's laying down. This is a this is a perfect record for this is a perfect driving record. And when people ask what like desert rock is or what stoner rock is, which is part of what's happening here, which is uh, where Queens of the Stone Age comes from, uh, when Oliveri and Ami are in Caius in particular. So like there's a there's a stoner rock foundation to this band always. Part of what I tell them is you have to imagine driving to it with the windows down in wide open space. Like there's just road in front of you and whether it's desert around you or or farmland or woods or whatever, like you're just driving to nothing seemingly. And if it sounds like a perfect soundtrack to that, it has some desert rock to it. It has some stoner rock to it. And the beat that Grohl lays down on You Think I Ain't Worth a Dollar is exactly that. Um, You just want to move when you hear it. And Oliveri sings lead on this one. Um, There's three different vocalists across the album. Oliveri is usually the guy who's screaming, although there's one song where that's not the case. Ami is the guy, the vocals are much smoother. And if you hear a falsetto at all, it's Ami. And Lanigan is the dude who sounds like he smokes a pack a day. And it's a very good voice, but you can hear that dirt in it. So uh, if you're listening to this for the first time and interested who's doing what, uh, that's kind of the vocal breakdown. Um, There's also, right, the darkness we talked about. I mean, the funny is right there and it's in the writing. Uh, Lyrically, this is not always an overtly funny album. You think I ain't where the dollar is, Six Shooter is. Like the songs that Oliveri sings tend to be just more explicitly funny. Uh, but to me, the most hilarious part here is that there are hand claps built into this song. And there are also right where the bars shift on the drums. The snare is produced to sound just enough like an actual clap that you just kind of start doing it along to it. Like if I'm just sitting and not really paying attention, I will just kind of start clapping. Um, love that moment. There's an incredible pause in this song uh it's maybe two or three seconds where the music drops and then you get one of my favorite things in music which is the pause followed by the and great example of that um and i'll get into the radio bit 
in a second. Did you have something you wanted to say? So I I found the the bracket. Mm. Um, I don't know if you want to go back to this later and keep doing this now. I feel like in terms of organization, that might make more sense. Oh, that's true. Um, uh, I will I will merely tease by saying there is one hilarious matchup that I had actually kind of forgotten about, <laughs> but which is very important for this podcast. Okay. So musically, that's what you think I ain't worth it, worth a dollar is. Um, I'd be remiss to not mention that there's a running gag on this album. It's a good gag. There are some people who are skeptical of it. I'm not one of them. We start. I think this is important. I, I wrote about this, I think, in my top 100, too, that we start with you hear the car door opening. You hear the beeping of the car telling you that the door is open, but you're not in it yet. That thing. Um you know, you hear someone shuffling in and the door closed, the radio turns on, you hear that little bit of static that I guess you don't really get anymore. But when you still had to turn a dial that you would get while you were honing in, and then we're, we're in a radio program. And we'll be through several the whole time. The conceit of the album is you're driving from Los Angeles to Joshua Tree, and it'll have radio stations at a few points in between. Um, so right that 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 driving thing that I mentioned earlier is built into the, like, that's the structure of the album. Um, I love that about it. Like that, that on its own is not particularly funny or anything. I just think it's, it's interesting. Uh, But when we get to the radio skits, this is an album that's just punching up at, you know, Clearwater radio, Clearwater channel, whatever they're called, like the massive radio conglomerate that owns, I don't know, probably like 80% of radio stations. Um, That's not, that's certainly not a research number, but it feels about right. Um, Like they're punching up at that. The the first skit we have here is Kip Kip Casper of Clone Radio, LA's Infinite Repeats. We play the songs that sound uh, more like anyone else than anyone else. Um, So we're starting right away, right in that, you know, that Clearwater ethos of there's a particular kind of thing that our songs have to be, and this will canonize them. And anything that threatens that is left out or dropped um, or anything that we deem unsavory, uh, right? This remarkable sameness that you're getting in the classic rock that is curated for you. And remember, this album comes out in 2002. So Napster is certainly around. The internet is around, but we're not certainly not deep into streaming yet. So a lot of people's music is is curated by radio. Um, our sense of what rock was, what it is, what it continues to do is curated by radio. So I think this is a perfect gambit for opening this for a band that's so openly and willingly and without comment on their part questions the the typical sound and machismo of rock, right? It's in the name Queens of the stone age. That's purposeful. It's in the, the influences that they're drawing from. It's in the, just how willing they are to be weird at different points and how this is another band that like, they are more, you know, certainly this is a Muso band in the way that the darkness is not but both of them are wearing their influences right on their sleeve. And I'm kind of glad you brought up the beach boys. Um, 
I would bring up disco as well. There's a, a <laughs> Tim gives the fist of approval. There's, there's just a, a disco term. Yeah, there's a <laughs> there's a rhythmic quality to this this band that few other contemporary rock bands have. And Ami has has kind of joked before, particularly on the debut album, uh, which is self-titled and on the most recent one, Villains, like part of his goal is always to make dance songs for robots. It's something, some phrase to that effect. And I think songs for the deaf might be the best version of it. And you can hear that in no one knows. And anecdotally, I played this for my niece at one point. This was a while back. She was grooving and she's talking to, uh, in, in her, you know, as deep as her assessment can go. Cause she was like seven at the time, <laughs> but she, she just liked that she could dance to it. Like that was the part that stood out to her. And it's this, you know, it's metal. It, it's, it's mommy has made no secret about his love for, for Billy Gibbons and for ZZ top, right? You're getting that that dirty kind of texas blues riffage um but there's an inherent swagger and an inherent just danceability to the whole thing right there is kind of a disco in the low end and that's part of what i don't just really draws me to this band that it's about the head banging and the hip shaking uh that it's about something that you can listen to and have you know, a total hyped up experience if it's just on your headphones and you're at home getting ready for something or something that can soundtrack this long drive to nowhere in, in the desert of Southern California. Um, the whole album is just boundless swagger and, and thunderous heft. And that is what rock and roll was and is um, as certainly as this band understands it. And they're just giving a kind of not an updated version but just sort of a new version of it that comes out of uh of stoner rock that of desert rock of that lineage um that is in conversation with stuff like led zeppelin and deep purple um but that does not forsake the the importance of groove and of rhythm um it's not just the guitar theatrics like you need that that low end too um and you can see that, you know, amazingly well on, on songs like Go With The Flow or um, Songs For The Dead, even, which is one of the 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 heaviest tracks on the thing. And it, it ends with an abs- like with a kind of schizophrenic breakdown. Um, it's how they tend to end most of their sets. And it's sort of a perfect choice for that. Um, but again, with Grohl on board and with, with, with the way Oliveri works with him, you never lose sight of right you just kind of have to feel it in your gut like that's what makes the music good and that's something that's clear across this album even as they're messing with different genres the raw metal of six shooter uh the punk of go with the flow the honestly surf rock of another love song um mosquito song is kind is is much more orchestral and it's an acoustic led one right they're they're playing in a lot of ways across this thing Um, But no one knows is the apex. This is all coming back to no one knows. Um, It's everything. It is hilariously lecherous. Um, I've described it like this. Other reviews have described it like this. But you can just hear 
in the beat this drunken creep kind of slinking across the bar and approaching you very slowly and you know how this is going to end and i've talked about this with slater kenny and with the darkness right we're we're listening to music here you need to feel it all in the actual music show don't tell that kind of thing songs for the deaf does that all over um of the three albums the they're not inscrutable lyrics but they're the most i don't know uh the uh, the least forefronted perhaps like they're they're not as blazingly obvious as the darkness (laughs) um or even something like the woods which for the most part is pretty straightforward lyrically like they're really good writers but it's pretty straightforward this one right it's just kind of open in different ways but you feel it on every song exactly what they want. And the skits keep coming back, the radio skits, like they place us on a particular station and then we get some iteration of that genre. Like the lead into Six Shooter is all death metal all the time, said in a, in a great, hilarious delivery. And then we get Six Shooter, which is this, just another punch up of that kind of genre. So it's an album that is honestly just fucking with the canon the whole time of what our expectations are and giving their own version of all those things that become this, um, this, uh, what's the word I want here? Um, I don't know, just the, like the perfect iteration of what Queens of the Stone Age is and can be and their own relationship to rock that they themselves are saying, yeah, we probably should kill some parts of this but it's in the delivery systems. It's in what goes around it. It's in the conversations around it. Slater Kinney, look, don't worry about the gender. Just, just rock with us. The darkness, look, don't worry about the irony or the corniness. Just rock with us. Queens of the Stone Age, look, don't worry about what's cool or, or what's curated or, what, or what's you know given to you. Just listen to it. And if it works for you, if it's good, then it's good. And that's kind of the ethos of this band to me. And that's part of why I love them so much. Um, and I would just say, too, this is the out the Queens of the Stone Age album where the supporting cast takes the biggest role. They shine the most. Like I mentioned, you know, you have Grohl, you let him shine. Lanigan is singing lead on three songs. I think Oliveri has two or three. Um, Ami takes a backseat in a way that he doesn't on most of the Queens of the Stone Age albums. Not a backseat. You always hear him there. Like he's doing the the guitar work um, and the production work on this one. But it's just so clearly a band here. And this album kind of speaks to the magic of what if we just sit four people down and just let them play? And to me, that's that's important to the essence of rock too like you can hear all of them that you can hear all the contributions they all get their moment to shine um but it's just what happens if you let four dudes just sit and play and that's what we get on songs for the deaf so i'm going to cut myself off and i'm going to ask you if you have any other thoughts on songs for the deaf <laughs> No, I think I think that was explained. That was explained pretty well. Um, that was definitely more of the 102 version than the oh, well. <laughs> than the one that I got dropped into several years back. Um, do you want to remember some some brackets? <laughs> I would love to remember some brackets. <laughs> okay, so I'd sort of forgotten that you had um, 
you had basically left the Grantland seating alone for this, mm-hmm. or like hadn't hadn't fooled around with it much because I, I messed with that it was a, important. Yeah, I messed with it a little. Like the Grantland seating, what they did went a little bit into the 2010s, so I dropped those and put some other ones in. So like I fussed with it a little bit, but it's mostly like it's it's true to the spirit of the Grantland one. All right, so some highlights um, because I'm pretty sure that we were just working through this on a Google Doc together, and there are multiple instances of us putting in notes. So for one of them, there's misery business versus bad romance, which I think you must have said, oh, God, I didn't even think about this happening. Yeah, that would Um, be me. (laughs) And then there's one where Take Me Out has no one knows in the first the first round and you just wrote kill me which (laughs) i didn't have to think about who that was and then the second round at one point since you've been gone versus shake your ass was the thing and i'm pretty sure i wrote this is a full sentence so i feel like our personalities really came through here we picked Um, shake your ass too didn't we no, no, oh. we didn't. We, we picked since you've been gone. <laughs> Missed opportunity. Um, so it's interesting because that bracket actually um, is the, the zone three bracket. And I think the one we had the longest conversation about must have been no one knows versus I believe in a thing called love. Oh, that um, happened? <laughs> yeah, I think I think that was the longest conversation. That was an elite eight matchup. And then we we sent no one knows in. Um, and in the first the first matchup of the final four international players anthem defeated Stan. And then in the second matchup, bad romance defeated. No one knows en route to a bad romance overall victory. It should have been. No one knows. That's an incredible final four. If I do say so myself, it was, <laughs> it was pretty great. I, I felt pretty good about <laughs> like if you, final four, if you give me those four and and I believe in a thing called love, like that's a hell of a top five. And I like I may think that's the top five <laughs> in some order. The rest of the Elite Eight for people who are interested was Float On, mm-hmm. which lost to International Players Anthem. Uh, Welcome to the Black Parade, which yeah. lost to Stan <laughs> and Electric Feel, which lost to Bad Romance. We did a good ass job on that one. This this is a it makes me wonder if other people should just be making our brackets because I feel like they're a lot more balanced when we're not in charge of all of it. Uh, semi-related. Not really. I guess it's related to the podcast. I just I saw it in my notes and I almost forgot about it, but um, I'd also be remiss to forget to mention one of the guest spots on, I think, three different tracks on Songs for the Deaf. Dean Ween. <laughs> all of my all of my people are coming up today <laughs> everyone's here for tim yeah dean ween is, is laying down some guitar some guitar tracks for some of these i don't yeah i did not know that at all actually that's that's special i honestly didn't either until i was looking into the uh right, the production and personnel credits yesterday um i knew some of the guests spots on here or or just people that were in the room it, it's a very long list there's four kind of core members listed for this one but there's a long list of people who are working or providing stuff for it 
like I knew Ami and and the guys in Ween have worked together before, um, but I didn't know Dean Ween was was on this recording so much. Outstanding. Yeah. Um, go back and listen to the Ween episode, everyone. Good stuff. So, do I have anything else here? I don't think I had anything else here. Uh, anything else you want to talk about, Tim? We ready for Spiel? Yes, I'm going to request a shorter Spiel than than usual because i feel like we have we <laughs> we have quite an episode hey 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 some of the time on this was you cleaning up coffee <laughs> nobody knows that <laughs> no one knows um, no one knows no one knows but i know so i've gone longer before i think i've behaved fairly well here um you did good you did very good without sarcasm you 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 held yourself back in a way i thought was admirable i, I did try listeners i'm being serious when i say that so um yeah moving on to spiel today's entry number 58 on the spin list is the woods slater kenny's 2005 album uh an album that look it's not a back to basics thing i hate that narrative but it's a you know who can make big loud moving thunderous heavy guitar rock like like zeppelin or like deep purple or like hendrix we can and that's kind of the mission statement of of the woods and uh, where slater kinney is at at that point in their career and it's no less ripe with the with the so- social and cultural and political commentary that we come to expect from from brownstein and tucker and weiss um, that's all there, sometimes allegorically, sometimes very straightforwardly. Uh, but it's also an album that tries to demolish that narrative itself, that it doesn't matter that we're women, it doesn't matter who's doing this. The point of rock music is to to make you feel uh, and, and to give you, you know, a good time and to... It doesn't it, it's not all about the words is that you have to actually feel what's going on in the woods does that brilliantly and i'm still shocked and offended that i have to <laughs> defend it so much here but that's where we are um so it's it's the album that is kind of the climax of what slater kinney does for for its listeners and i don't want to undersell that like it's really important stuff but it's also the album that just says we are damn good musicians and this is why we're one of the best bands going and I think it is as firm a statement as anything that, you know, we can talk about rock dying, but there's always some out, someone out there carrying the flag and doing it well and, and updating it for, for new generations. And so to that end, we have Rock is Dead, Long Live Rock. And first option for Tim was Permission to Land, the 2003 album from The Darkness. And again, if you go into this and you see, okay, it's doing glam it's doing queen it's doing 80s hair metal there are uh, songs about demon dogs and there are songs about heroin use and there are songs about i don't know if it's about the big fuzzy purple monster in the video but let's say it is just for fun and there's a guy leaping around in a terrible porn stash and a unitard if you hear all that and you think nope not for me a you're wrong and b there's no irony like that's the band they're here to have fun they're wearing all that on their sleeves and they're reminding us that 
look, the reason we connected with so much of that classic rock, so much of that old rock, it's visceral, it's tangible, it's felt, and it's fun. And that's permission to land in a few different words. They're incredible musicians, right? They, they play all the classic tropes, whether that's from the ballads, whether that's from the blues breakdowns, whether that's from the pulsating ACDC stuff. Hawkins is a, a throwback vocalist, if nothing else, uh, in, in a just big, huge, amazing voice. They're playing in all the tropes, but they do it with utter conviction and, and they do it pitch perfectly. And you hear that in the recording. You're going to know if something's ironic. You're going to know if something is, it believes in what it's doing and permission to land believes in what it's doing. And it's that kind of conviction, that willingness to be the drunken buffoons that makes permission to land um, such, such a great statement. And uh, the other option for Tim here is Queens of the Stone Age 2002 album, Songs for the Deaf, uh, a song that is investigating irony in its own way like it is being tongue-in-cheek especially with the right the concept of the whole thing and the the running radio bits it's it's a punch-up at um well it's in conversation with right all the times that we say rock is dead queens of the stone age is kind of pointing us to the issue that we are curated a, a type of rock um, or, or different types that are then siloed off. And the radio bits serve that function while Queens of the Stone Age, right? They allow those to be there. They allow those to be funny. They allow that to to guide us through this album. And it's kind of, a, okay, there's that moment. Think about that. Now let us blow you away with a track that's going to be in conversation with that skit um, or that's going to be a reaction to it. And I think what songs for the deaf does better than anything is just remind us that rock music at its, at its finest, no matter what subgenre it's working in and they can work in all of them here. It's about, about some people getting together and just having fun, making music, letting everyone shine about the interplay of all that great album for that. It's about, uh, banging your head and shaking your hips. It's about like that dance ability is important to it. Not that it has to be kind of the like, uh, you know, the, the it's not full on disco, but like the kind of heavy disco of this. Right. Not that it has to go that extreme, um, but right. That it's something you feel in your gut. It's something you feel inside you um, that it's not just about instrumental theatrics what this band can do with the best of them, um, but it's something that hits you deep and gets you moving. And it's about right it's it's about the music and that's ultimately what songs for the deaf is about and whether it's you know that early blistering run that makes you want to run through walls whether it's the more somber ending run that has you reflecting on your own damnation um whether it's some of the metal songs that are playing around with with punk or metal or where dean ween starts appearing so and where dean ween appears uh funny will follow uh, it's something that's able to take us through all those different versions of what we have and just give this look, screw the narrative, screw what, you know, just listen to the music, drive along with the music, dance along to the music, sit and have it in your headphones and bob along to the music, right? It, it, it constantly recenters that. And again, the, it's not dead. Someone's going to carry the torch 
but it's about that that relationship between listener and music like cut all the other stuff out um and i think all three of these do that i think songs for the deaf uh does that in its own tongue-in-cheek way so tim queens of the stone age or the darkness so i thought about this um a little bit more or less like actually pretty close to the time you were talking about like the ethos of each band a little bit earlier um and you were sort of looking at uh slater kinney like the ethos is um the sort of like democratic idea of rock that you know someone can come from anywhere that there's like a meritocracy of like if you're good enough and you get enough opportunities eventually the right people will hear you um and then for the darkness there's this ethos of of pastiche and and to some extent of of lifestyle or or presentation and then for um queens of the stone age there's this this ethos of like individualism of of being yourself and having this very like personal relationship um and for me that all sort of matches up to a certain kind of romance that we associate with rock so for like slater kinney is the romance of happy ears like that romantic idea and then the darkness is that romance of what is a rock star like what do they look like what do they sound like why do they look like little sweet um and that that's just sort of general question and then for for queens of the stone age something that you mentioned and something that it like they obviously had in mind is like the romance of opening your windows and taking the hood off the car and the hood (laughs) (laughs) i like i like that more (laughs) Look, man, when uh, when you think I ain't worth a dollar hits, I'm pretty much ready to just rip the hood off of stuff. Could you imagine if that were like a super <laughs> punk rock thing to do? Is <laughs> just drive around with the engine exposed. What a thought that is. <laughs> Some Mad Max shit. <laughs> oh, boy. So like driving around with the windows down and like, you know. The, the, the dust, top the, the top down on the car. <laughs> and if you're really serious about it, <laughs> then you might just like rip the doors off too and go full Jeep on your 1985 Toyota. Um, but like there's a certain kind of romance that that suggests. And I just sort of thought about which one of those do I think is the most important to this idea of rock is dead long long live rock like which which romance is the the one that stands out um and for me it's definitely the automotive one uh (laughs) so for that reason i'm gonna go with with songs for the deaf here i just kind of think it's got the 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 attitude about it i think it's so important and is is maybe a little bit more similar to what Slater Kinney is doing. Like if there's a two out of three kind of thing going on, those are the two and then the darkness are, are their own thing as much as it, as it pains me not to pick the band I had stuck in my head through most of (laughs) Memoria last night, the new movie from famous Thai slow cinema genius, (laughs) Apichap on Wirasathakul. Like, as much as that hurts <laughs> i just kind of feel like i kind of feel like it's it's right to go with songs for the deaf here the the romance of it is is the right answer 
I don't remember what kind of car it is exactly. It may well be a Jeep, but the video for no one knows is the band driving around. I'm pretty sure the top is down. I think the hood is still in place. No. Posers. And, well, but wait, wait, wait. But they hit a deer and they get out and they try and check on the deer and the deer rises back up and basically knocks them all out and ties them to the car. And then the deer starts driving around. So I think your uh, your automotive wishes here uh, have been uh, presaged by the band, really, when they, when they made the video. Incredible. Um. Maybe that's maybe that's the uh, the tagline for songs for the deaf. Uh, no one knows, but they know what we needed. They knew. Um, I'm I. Okay, we all know how much I love this album at this point. I am I am very sad to see Permission to Land go. Uh, I would have had a ton of fun ranking that in the new one hundred. <laughs> um, but we know where my where like the deepest depths of my heart lie. So um very sad very very happy I don't have to go down and punch Tim in the face. Um Me too. <laughs> anything else you wanna say? No, I think I think I'm I'm good and I think I may never talk again after deciding hood was the, the phrase my brain wanted there. <laughs> I don't know. I like it. I think it fits with the spirit of the whole thing. Uh, Thank you for listening. Again, our entry for today was The Woods, Slater Kenny's 2005 album at number 58 on the spin list. And I gave Tim the choice between uh, The Darkness's Permission to Land and Queens of the Stone Age's uh, Songs for the Deaf to our theme of Rock is Dead, Long Live Rock. And Tim has chosen Songs for the Deaf, to go on to the subtitles albums list. Uh, Thank you for listening. Uh, If you want to see more about us, if you want to read our blogs, if you want to check out playlists I'm making, if you want to check out uh, reviews of movies that Tim has, uh, if you want to catch up on back episodes of the podcast, we referenced several here. uh, So you can go and check out what those are all about and and do more of a deep dive Uh, for all of that. Please go to our website, subtitlespodcast.com and please do also stay tuned for part two of this episode where tim will be talking about uh imports and i tried to make something more clever but now i'm just thinking of imported cars with their hoods torn off